listening to the Brick in the Wall podcast. Hello everybody, welcome to another edition of the Brick in the Wall podcast. It's me, the Yorkshire Pud, Paul. And me, Greg, the Berry Baller. Hi, Paul. Uh, it's been a little while. I know, missed you again. Been a while indeed. Lots has happened though. Uh, well, an awful lot in the world of football. I know. The Super Duper League, have you heard of that one? Is that That's the East Anglian European Super League though, isn't it? So... So we are recording this and broadcasting from East Anglia, and there's there's a cracker that came across this week. It did make me chuckle. So obviously there's the Super League news that everyone is up in arms about, but we have our equivalent over here in the East. So the six best clubs in the region, Norwich City, Cambridge United, Peterborough, Colchester, Kings Lynn and Lowestoft will play for the newly minted Broads Cup. <laughs> the prize money is expected to be £48.50. <laughs> <laughs> sponsorship opportunities have been snapped up and Roy's of Roxham and Bewilderwood are amongst the bankrolling veterans. Fantastic. <laughs> Listen, my, my club came in. Uh, did you see the tweet from York City? York, York City's no, tweet. We can confirm that we will not be competing in the European Super League <laughs> this time round. <laughs> so, excellent. Fabulous. Anyway, Fabulous. who have we got tonight? Oh, cracker. So really, really pleased to introduce to David Carter, um, former National Schools Commissioner, uh, currently working as the uh, Systems Leadership Advisor to the Ambition Institute, and obviously author of the Bible, Leading Academy Trusts, Why Some Fail But Some Don't. Good evening, Sir David. Good evening. How are you? Nice to be with you. Um, Enjoyed your introduction to football. Fantastic. Just out of interest, before we start, are Cardiff going to go in the European Super League? We're in the Welsh Cup, mate. That's oh, all we need to there do. you go. <laughs> 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 Haverford West. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. Well, thank you for joining us. I think every club has their own take on this in some way, shape or form. So, uh, yeah, we're going to enjoy this for a while. I'm, I'm anyway, the fact that in the East Anglia, Ipswich could make it in the top six. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let me just let me just finish it off because this this text went on for a long time. You'll love this, David. So, uh, Ipswich Town made comments. They said these plans involving teams of players being able to kick a ball to each other for ninety minutes tells us that this is quite impossible. This is simply elitist nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wonderful! Anyway, let let's focus on education because we could talk about the game all evening. So. David, just to just to bring us um, right to point, really, um, how did you become involved in Academy Trusts? Give us give us a starting point. Wow. Well, I mean, I I've been involved in education for thirty eight years. So I I started teaching in nineteen eighty three. Uh, I was a music and a PE teacher. Um, so that's all I've ever done. I went after university. I did my PGC, and I've been teaching ever since. Um, I became a head in Gloucestershire in ninety seven. And then I moved into Bristol in um, 2004 to become head of John Cabot City Technology College. And, and I suppose it, that, that's the real answer to your question in a way, is at the time in Bristol, secondary education wasn't, wasn't, wasn't great. Um, and I was determined that we did something, we would do something different around how schools would work together. This was obviously pre-academy, but also the idea that, you know, if, if Bristol schools were going to continue to work in isolation, I couldn't see how we'd ever galvanise the capacity of the city to do something remarkable. And Bristol's an amazing city, although I didn't grow up there. I mean, I, I worked there for 20 years almost. Um, 
two universities, multicultural, arts is fantastic, sport pretty good. Yeah, education was just really, really dire at that time. And and I think one of the things that I learned from that period was that if you can get people together working together around a common cause, you can do some quite remarkable stuff, really. And so it was off the back of that experience that, um, that the Cabinet Learning Federation was set up, and uh, I, I was appointed to lead that. So the rest is history, as they say. Uh, and that included the, was that the, the amalgamation of the first three schools within that trust. Is is that is that what happened? Yeah, it was. So um, I, I had a role where I was executive head over John Cabot and uh, and, uh, and Bristol Brunel Academy, which which had uh, opened in September two thousand and seven. And so it was very much a federation then, hence the later title of the trust. Um, it wasn't a mat at that point. And then when the third school joined us, Bristol, Bristol Metropolitan Academy in September 2009, um, that was when the trust was formed and, and the entity that it is today. And so so I, I ceased to be the head of John Cabot at that point and then ran the ran the trust. And then we grew the trust from that point. And it's uh, it's gone from strength to strength. Uh, it's got schools in Bristol, South Gloucestershire, uh, North Somerset. Um, and, you know, even though I left it in 2014 when I became the Southwest Regional Schools Commissioner, it's still it's still an organisation I care a lot about and I'm passionate about, and I, I'm always delighted to see what they're up to. So, uh, no, that, that was a you know, an amazing privilege to be part of that journey and that history. Fabulous. And then to bring us to bring us up to speed, then there was, um, or right up to date, I should say, there was a tweet the other evening, David. Well, well aside, the best tweet was your industrial-sized veggie lasagna. And I do wonder how long that lasted. It looked like it could have gone on for days. Um, but there was the tweet, uh, you can't be a great school if one down the road is struggling. Yeah. Um, and I suppose that's the root of your of your starting point at Cabot, surely. Yeah, it is. Uh, and, and it was the kind of mentality I tried to take into the DFE with me when, when, when I went into those different roles because – I I get very frustrated when I see these Ofsted banners um, proclaiming outstanding excellence and all the rest of it. When you know the reality is often a school isn't outstanding the day after Ofsted has made that judgment. It's a moment in time picture. It's a snapshot, and I and I used to despair of that in Gloucestershire particularly, where you know parents taking their kids to school, teachers driving to school would go past this big banner to get on with the gritty the gritty issue of turning a school around. And so um, when Michael Wilshaw was chief inspector, I remember talking to him about, you know, if you were talking about outstanding once, great. But if you wanted to be outstanding twice, you should introduce a policy that said you can't be outstanding twice unless you've helped another school improve. Uh, and, and, and I think he was quite interested in that idea, but obviously that was a, that was a political decision not to do that. But I, I've always believed that, that, that if, if you live in a community where you've got three good schools, and one special measure schools, you haven't got a strong educational community because mm. the kids who go to the special measure schools don't really choose that. That's where they went. You know, this notion that there's free choice about where you go to school is just not not the case. Um, and, you know, we can only ever judge ourselves, I think, about how good we are when we look at the performance of the school that's the weakest in our community. Um, and, and that was very much the thinking around Cabot and how do we make a difference to local schools in Bristol to start with and have expanded a bit beyond that. But I've always believed that that statement is true. And uh, it's not something that always universally gets met with approval, but, you know, it stood me in good stead for over 30 years. And, and I don't intend to change that view. I think that's exactly what we should be doing in schools. We can only move at the pace and, and praise the success of the, of the system when we look at the performance of the weakest schools and how do we help them, help the, how do we help them become great schools? 
And it's, it's interesting because in the book you talk about um, capacity givers and capacity takers. And actually, you know, we've all got to be prepared to be capacity givers. We can't be selfish with the capacity and the skills that we have got because um, we're often serving the same communities, aren't we? Completely right. Completely right. And the and the issue there is that, that we never have enough capacity because capacity is expensive if you're buying in. It takes time if you're trying to develop it. If it's an intellectual thing that you're trying to build the, you know, through CPD, the, the quality of your workforce, that's that's not a quick fix. So so capacity is something that will always elude us, I think, as a sector. But I, I, I think if we see it through the lens of this kind of curious spend diagram where some schools are capacity givers because they've got the they're great. And some schools have no choice but to be capacity takers because they're struggling. The reality is that most of the schools are, are in this sector both. They've got elements of capacity giving and capacity taking. But I, I've i also believed, probably more since my time in a more of a system role, that um, there, there's 21,000 schools in England. And I think 21,000 schools in this country require improvement. Not not necessarily in the way that Ofsted would describe that as a judgment, um, but but the reality is that even if we could come up with a definition between us this afternoon of what the 100 best schools in the country were, I promise you that we'd find areas of weakness in every single one of them. And so if you if you have that notion of every school is schools, schools are not static for very long. They're either getting better or they're, or they're declining. And you've got to catch the sweet spot when that moment is right to invest in more school improvement strategy or more energy to keep it going forward. And for me, if you think about it through about people who are capacity givers and capacity takers, I think you have a much more sophisticated model of system leadership rather than let's give a slug of money to an outstanding school to go and help a special measure school and assume that that's enough because it isn't. Yeah. And it's quite interesting because we, I mean, we've, we've spoken with quite a few people over the last sort of 12 months um, and we've been talking about how – what COVID has done is, is actually opened people up to supporting each other more than ever before. Um, you know, yeah. we've got to take the positives from the pandemic and certainly um, across trusts, trust to local authority schools, those that are in the same community are more open to be capacity givers. And we've just got to be really careful we don't lose that now. Uh, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. I think if there were three or four things that we were going to talk about or about what happens next, that's one of them. Um, I, I'm, I'm not going to be naive enough to say that the people who who, who don't agree with academy policy are going to have a sudden road to Damascus appear, uh, experience on it. But what I've seen from the work that I've been doing over the last 18 months is that, that trusts and schools who haven't ever really worked together before have, have, have developed and, I, I guess, contributed to a really different type dialogue and a different type of collaboration, um, you know, from... I often think that the crisis brings out the best in people, doesn't it, sometimes? And I think that's true of our sector. So whether it's been about helping people deliver food parcels, whether it's about sharing risk assessments, whether it's about using buildings differently for key working children, you know, I think we've seen some barriers come down in the last year. Um, and I really hope that, uh, that the people on the ground recognise that, which I'm sure they do, and do even more of it to preserve it, because I don't think it's going to come from government to do that. But I think the people on the ground, I mean, you talked about Wayne, for example, Wayne Norrie in, 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 and Steve Lancashire, people, you guys have a huge admiration for. They're, they're great examples of people who are not bound by, by what the system tells them they should be. They, they, if they can help, they will. And I think we've got a lot of, of leaders in our system at the moment who think that way. And, and that's great. We should build upon that. So the equation for school improvement, I love this. It's on the office wall. Strategy plus capacity plus pace equals improvement. Now, 
there's a there's a caveat to that where you write about understanding change, people, resources, and capacity. So when in the early days you started um, the trust and you were working across three schools, where did you begin with that? Let's just try and understand what that journey has looked like. Yeah, that's a really good question. And, and, I, and I guess it was probably the toughest period in a way, because if I'm honest with you, we, in, when we set up the trust with three schools, the, 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 the team working across the trust was me and the finance director. So we, we didn't have an army of school improvers as some of the trusts have today. And to be fair, rightly so, that they built their capacity to do that. It was it was very much based upon me sort of overseeing education and my colleague overseeing well, finance ostensibly, but actually the lot, everything else that wasn't education. Um, and as the schools joined us, we were able to release a little bit more capacity to build that that that, that infrastructure around it. And the weakness in that model of having a very limited team in the centre is that all you ever do is monitor stuff. You, also, you effectively become a bit of a bean counter because all you've got time to do is to check that what people said they were going to do, they're doing. And, and there isn't enough time or, or, or enough people or, or man hours to be able to say, right, what we really need to do is we need to sort of put some support into that science department um, and we need to put a couple of SLEs or, or a couple of brilliant science teachers in there. It was only later when we got to five, six schools that I built that, that, that model. Um, and then we moved really quickly after that. Um, so, so I think that was a really interesting period of, of learning for me about how, yes, you can be an executive leader and you can have all this responsibility. And I was accountable to the trust and ultimately the FE, but I actually didn't have any resource to make the change I needed. So, so I think that's, that's a good illustration of why growth can be successful. My slight worry about that is that people grow only to build the financial resource to grow that. And I, I get I get a little bit frustrated when I talk to trusts who, who throw a number at me. You know, that we're, 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 we're 10 schools. We'd like to be 25 schools in two years' time. Why don't you just want to be the best trust of 10 schools in the country? Why isn't that enough for you? Rather than a school of a trust of 25, where you might be a bit mediocre uh, on how you do that. So that was a very important part of my journey, Greg. So, so the point about using... Um single employer status where you've got teachers building capacity across a number of schools was that part of the attraction for them to join your journey under your your ethos and value set they wanted to be part of it or did you go out and find that talent pool that was going to support you in this journey no very much the former um in the time that we were there oh i was sorry i was there i think i only recruited externally two people and one of them was a really bad fit and then it didn't and it didn't work so the capacity came from people that were were already in the schools which i which i thought was a really positive message anyway and you've got to you've got to remember that the schools that joined the trust in that period of time people weren't volunteering to join trust these were, these were failing schools mm. so i had i had to build that capacity in the schools with the leadership teams in the academies to get people either recruit new people in or develop people so we had a talent pool to work from, which is another part of the answer as to why it took a while to get there. But no, we we had a we had a group of people who were doing anything between one and two days a week across the trust and three days a week in their academy. Um, I, I, I introduced an idea where some of the principals uh, committed a certain number of days per year to being a trust leader, uh, but, but almost working on something that they were really interested in. So if they, if they, if they were a maths teacher, let's say, even though they were now ahead, they would help me lead the maths network. Um, if they were really passionate about uh, something to do with SEND, they would have an input into that. And so we, we, we worked basically with the talent that we had 
um, and really looked at how we could share that practice, but also deepen the impact by having people who were, in, who were employed by the same people, not consultants, but had a real buy-in to Bristol kids, which for me was really important, to go into Bristol classrooms and, and help the kids out. And, and that, I think, was a model that I, I still today think is the right way to do that. I think if you bring people in from outside who don't who don't understand the culture and don't really understand what you're trying to do, it kind of feels a little bit like the old local authority advisor model, where people just came in and gave you some advice, but there was no accountability as to whether you followed it or whether they came back and checked you'd done it. And I think t- tied in with that in the book, there's a really interesting bit about the expectations every employee has a right to expect, because what you know, you've got these great employees, but actually you've got to invest in them. They, they need to feel that they're part of that organisation and that you have a vested interest in them to retain them and get the best from it. I thought that was a fantastic chapter um yeah how how do you develop that well i think you i think a lot of the answers i'm giving you i suppose go back to first principles so so you know my 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 starting point is that if you're running a school or a trust you're probably spending 75 to 80 percent of your income on people um and and i sometimes laugh and chuckle that we spend more time doing due diligence on a piece of it kit than we do on the on the people that we spend our most money on so so i i think i've always felt that that you've got to look after your workforce and i and i see it through through two two ways really one is uh, how do you help the individual become the best professional version of themselves they can be? And that's a bit of CPD. I think it's coaching. I'm a big advocate of coaching and mentoring. I think it's about career development. So people feel really, really connected to the people that employ them and the trust. And then the other side is how you look after them as people, which, which is more important than ever now, given the last sort of 14 months that we've experienced. Um, but, but even before the pandemic, I felt that was important. And that's about workload. It's about respect. It's about... I think on a very basic level, how senior leaders support younger teachers and support staff, whether that's about behavior, whether it's about feedback, whether it's about opportunities. So, so that people feel that they, they, they give everything that they have during the working day, but there's still a little bit left over at the end for themselves and their family. And I think at times we've got that wrong and, and out of kilter. And I think, uh, you know, one of the things that the pandemic has shown us is that we can work differently. We, you know, there's a, there's a lot of those kind of meetings, for example, that you always used to take place at the end of a school day face to face, which don't need to anymore. And as long as we don't fill that meeting with another one and say to people, look, it's OK to go for a swim, go for a run, go home early, pick up your kids. Then I think I think we've got a chance of doing something quite different. So that leads me into the lovely question. And I hope Paul wasn't saving this till the end. But what what is the future of education in your eyes in the next five to ten years? And within that, I suppose we can include, you know, what, what what's the journey that the academy system is is going to take up from here on in? Yeah. Well, I think I think those are two are two sides of the same coin in a way. Um, I mean, the future of the education system, I think, has got to be one that that sees itself much more at the heart of public sector policy. Um, and not just a government department. So if we think about, so number one would be, if we think about the challenge of um, helping kids recover, catch up, whatever whatever phrase is in vogue today, I don't think education can do that on, on its own. Uh, I think it's too big a challenge. And so some of the challenges that our most vulnerable families face are, are as 
as big an issue for those families in terms of social care, housing, um, employment opportunities, as it is about the quality of education. So number one would be that that, that, that schools, whether they're in trusts or not, see themselves much more as CST and Leora Crudders would call it civic leaders, position themselves as part of the solution for communities Absolutely through the through education, but not exclusively. I think that'll be number one. I think the second challenge is going to be about how do, how do we reconfigure what we what are we judge the success of a school at the moment. It's it's still very much about how did your inspection go and what be your last set of results. Yeah. Um, and, and as you'll know in the book, I, I talk a lot about you know school improvement and improving results takes three to five years. And and the tension around that, of course, is the parliaments tend to be shorter than that, and certainly education ministers' tenure is shorter than that. So so the pressure to turn things around very very quickly is a political one as well as an imperative for the community. But I think I think we need to rethink about what that looks like in terms of how we measure the success of schools going forwards. Um, and part of that for me uh, is a longer term view about. So for example, if if we look at sixteen year olds who are leaving school or finishing their GCSEs this summer. One, what what are they doing in 10 years' time would be my question. But actually, the education that we provided for them has, has led to, we tend to sort of make an assumption that the education metrics end at 16 and 18, but the true benefit of education is lifelong. And do we inspire young people to want to carry on learning? I thought that would be an interesting one, uh, how we do that one. And I think linked into that second point is probably the, 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 the theme of our evidence and research. You know, I think there's a, I think education can, can, can be a bit of a, um, an echo chamber in that we talk an awful lot about stuff, but we talk about some of it from a very low level of evidence. I think we, we are gathering evidence and research all of the time through the work that it is, whether it's the EEF, whether it's universities, whether it's the system itself. And I think we should be much more critical users of research and evidence rather than continually thinking we have to reinvent the wheel. And then you're, the third point, I suppose, is the one that, that you alluded to there. What, the, what, what kind of system do we want? Because we certainly... If we sat down five years ago, plan an education system, it would look like a buffet where you've got every possible makeup of a school, age range going on, maintained schools, dioceses, academies, UPCs, free schools, studio schools, and the list goes on and on. And there is an inefficiency about having a really complex multiple system like this, where where there are different lines of accountability, academy trusts, direct to Westminster the minister through the regional schools commissioner and the national schools commissioner on the other hand local authority schools local councillors and local councils um, and, and, and it's it's actually a miracle that we make it work so well but whether we, that's the right way to do it i don't know but the caveat around that would be the conservative party had a go at academizing the system in 2016 and got it really badly wrong and it became a really toxic message which, which i think would be a very hard one to plan so this notion that we we slowly move to nine and a half thousand academies and ten thousand academies, and how long will that take? So, at some point, I think there's got to be a, a rethink of how we do that. And I think the rethink probably is around policy, around how do we hardwire collaboration. And of course, multi academy trust is a vehicle for that. But I, I think the weakness in the system is the only vehicle for it. 
um, te teaching school alliances, which have now been reconfigured around teaching school hubs, didn't have that line of accountability. And that's not to say for one second that there weren't some brilliant teaching schools, because there absolutely were, and they did some, and are continuing to do some fantastic work. But the problem with the teaching the teacher school model is that if if I wanted to share with you something that we did in my school, you'd be interested in the moment, but there'd be no imperative on you to do anything different yeah. tomorrow morning. Yeah. And, and with the Academy Trust, like it or not, if you if you put the authority in a leader who's responsible for outcomes in those schools, there is an authority that says we need to change. And so I think that for me is where I put my energies if to think about how do we create a collaborative model across 21,000 schools, which absolutely enables change to happen on a systemic wide basis. Interesting. You, you touched on there around the, te the teaching school hubs and looking at the chapter on career pathways, because um, well, when I I spoken with the teaching school hub just last week, and they were talking around offering the you know the early careers training, teacher training, through all the way through to to phase five, as you put it on on your pyramid, um, which yeah. which is fine. But what worries me slightly is that are all schools going to be going to access this pyramid? Is, is every professional that we have across academies, across local authorities, are they going to have access to this high quality CPD um, and that investment that you that you refer to? So two, two things I think I'd say to that is, one is I think that is one of the challenges uh, that, that, that's got to be addressed about the, the access to that. And, and, I, and I know that there are plans in place to build those hubs and outreach partners. I think that's, but that takes time to do that. So I do think that's one, one challenge that's got to be overcome. I think the second issue I'd say about it is that, that when you think about how uh, certain groups and certain schools have been have been invited to be part of this. Let's not assume that the schools that didn't get invited don't have good practice. And 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 I think if I was running a teaching school hub, one of my prime responsibilities of that hub would be to honour great practice wherever it exists. And I think the third element of it is that there is still a sense that there's uh, a prescribed way to do certain things. And, and I would hope that the system would be, again, would be a critical user of that rather than simply put up the barrier and say, well, we didn't think that, therefore it won't work with our kids. Yes, it might work with your kids if you can understand it. And I think that's a, that's a part of the maturity of the system for me that we now need to think about is how do we, how do we share evidence-based success that others might be able to use um, and I think if we get those three things right, then I think it becomes a, it becomes a reality. But you, it's a great question because I think that is one of the things that often happens with government. You create the structure, but you don't have the infrastructure to make it get into every classroom. I worry about kind of the black black holes of CPD, black holes of opportunity. We talk about cultural capital for our, our students and our children, but actually what about cultural capital for our, our professionals working in school as well? They deserve those experiences and access to those experiences. Um, and it just worries me that we could have a lot of professionals that, that slip through the net, if you like. Well, I agree with that. Uh, and, and I think that that still speaks very loudly to the recruitment and retention agenda, which which we, we haven't m mentioned much last year, but I'm absolutely convinced is still there. Uh, I think it's probably also started to reference uh, school leaders as well, deputies and heads who've had the most incredibly difficult year. And I think a number of them are thinking, you know, for their own health, their own sanity, their, their own families, they're thinking, is, is this really what I want to be doing? Um, and we've got to make sure that there are people wanting to come up behind them, whether it's through a talent management approach or a succession planning approach, who are ready to take over these roles. And that, and that is exactly your point, which is how do we create the opportunity for people to not just be the recipients of information and, and the users of other people's initiative, 
but to actually celebrate their own innovation and almost task them to incubate new ways of doing things. Um, I, I have a feeling that over the course of the next five, ten years or so, the next couple of parliaments, because of the downward pressure there'll be on public, public the public purse, the number of uh, new innovations that the government is going to be able to pump prime is going to be reduced. And I think that's a, there's a real opportunity there for us to rethink policy from the classrooms up rather than the DfE down. So the DfE, I suspect, will go into more of a, of, a, of, a, of a monitoring role and also a transactional role in terms of moving money into the system. But the best leaders, the best teachers, the best schools, the best trusts will have the opportunity to think differently and, and recreate the landscape. And I, that's an incredibly great opportunity, isn't it, if we get that right? I just wanted to pick up on, you know, we, we mentioned finance and we could talk about finance in education all day long, probably. But around um, some of your work, the early work, I think, around um, Outward Grange Academy Trust, when you looked at curriculum-led financial planning and all aspects around efficiency, and I suppose on building capacity as well. Um, budgets are tight, David, really, really tight. Um, and, you know, when we're talking about building capacity, what my fear is you're going to have some people starting to begin to look inward, and we need to maintain that ability to look outward and support. Um, Words of advice for people out there who are currently looking at those budget decisions with their trustees and their their governors. Yeah, it's it's tough, isn't it? And and if we think back to when I was in the DfE and Lord Agnew was talking about you know truffles and bottles of champagne for people that could make savings, I think I think we've we've stripped that cupboard a bit bare. I, I think people through the last three or four years, particularly through the pandemic, have have done an incredible job at managing on on less and less. Um, so I think there are two things. One is um, a mantra that I used to use when I was a head first time 20 odd years ago, which was you can't spend the same pound twice. And I, and I don't want to make that that comment in a patronising way. But there is a sense for me about what I think we tended to do when, when things have been good and money has been uh, flowing through the system in, in greater volume. We tended to roll budget thinking over from one year to the next. And, and we assumed that if we, if we had a budget for X last year, we've probably got a budget for it this year. And I think what schools are having to do is to almost zero rate their budgets on an annual basis to start again with that, which which I think is not a bad exercise. And the the CLFP model outward and others have, have used is is a useful starting point for that. But there comes a point at which you, you you cut and you cut and you cut, and you start to get into the scenario where you can actually ever deliver the educational standards do. So. You know, I'm a, I'm a former music teacher. I, I, I used to battle in 1980 for resources for my department. I would now be battling whether my subject even survived, I would think. And, and I certainly wouldn't be running A-level classes of two or three anymore as I was in the 1990s. So, so the world has moved on. Um, but, but fundamentally, one of the things that we have to do with leaders is that we, we, you know, we are guardians of the public this is taxpayers' money, and it's not good enough to carry on spending and build up deficits because we can. Part of the responsibility of being a school leader or a trust leader is that you manage within the budget you get, and, and I absolutely accept we always do with more, but that's that's the responsibility that we signed up to when, when we took on, on, on that role. But I think it, what it does is it, 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 it goes back to the previous point, Greg, about the hard wiring of collaboration because Whilst I don't believe there are huge economies, there are only so many photocopying contracts you can play around with to reduce <laughs> money. You can think about joint appointments between schools and trusts. 
you can think about commissioning other partners to deliver things for you, which you then deliver for them. So there's a quid pro quo rather than a financial arrangement. And I think that's going to be more and more of, of how we think differently about how we how we spend our resource and, and how we draw down expertise. I think what's happened through particularly the last year within COVID is how many people have stepped up outside of what their 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 core offer is within teaching in a classroom. Um, you know, you mentioned earlier about, I don't know, people delivering boxes of food or going above and making um phone calls to individual children and speaking to parents to explain mathematical equations to help learning at home. So in terms of what how the profession does look out there within the public domain, I think it's been on a bit of a roller coaster in the last year. We were certainly enemy of the state at one point and then saviors towards the end. Did you have a view through that difficult period that we all experienced? Yeah, I did. And 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 I so I'm going to give you an example just to try to back that up. Because I, I think the dynamic and the relationship between education and the communities that schools serve is changing for the, you know, in, in a good way. And I think families have, have, had, have had an insight into what it's like to educate children. And some have found it difficult and some have found it really, really, really good. And I think there's an interesting dynamic probably for the next academic year about how we rethink our relationship with parents and families and what kind of role they want to play as partners in their children's learning. Um, I'm a trustee on the National Teaching Awards um, Board, um, and we have seen such an increase in the, the Thank a Teacher nominations. Um, unbelievable. I mean, I, can't, I won't tell you what the figure is because I don't know it, but I, at the last board meeting, it was, it was significant on the graph. It, was, it had rocketed. And a lot of those have come from children and families. So that teacher that, that, that rings up to explain the quadratic equation that teacher who just rings up and cancels the single mum who's having a really tough time with three school kids. Parents are seeing teachers as, as, as people as well as teachers, if that makes sense, and are no longer comparing them maybe with the teachers that they had when they were kids 20 years ago. And I think there's a real strength and an opportunity for us to think about what that might look like um, in, in, in that respect. And I, and I know that the job of teaching is is tough enough as it is without having to take on those extra responsibilities. But if you come into education to serve, which is what I think people do, here's an opportunity for us to think differently about that going forward. And I think that's a really exciting notion because because the world will resettle. Things will go back to something which feels normal, even if it's not before. It'll 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 become a new bond, a model of normality. Um, and I just hope that we don't get into the same sort of troughs of despair that we got around some of the things that frustrated us two years ago. Um, and, 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 and we are stronger and more robust as a sector to, to, to push back to the DFE, to push back to Ofsted, to push back to people who don't really know much about education, but have a view about it, and say, hang on a second, where were you when we were, we, when we were fighting this battle? And, and actually, you know, we, we, we came through this, we came through it stronger. Absolutely. The resilience as the profession has got a lot, a lot stronger as well, hasn't it? Um, can, I, can I just move us on? I just want, I've got so many chapters I'd love to talk about in your book, but I, about the um, strategic priorities and, uh, and underpinning effective trust performance and governance. And the, the first two priorities really stand out for me around um, the building the sense of a, of a trust as a single organisation rather than that a cluster of standalone schools. Um, and I know, you know, some schools find that quite difficult that notion of actually we're we're part of a whole entity here. We're not we're not um, a federation. We're part of a whole entity, but communication is really key because you've got to get your lines of communication right. People need to be feel part of and not isolated. Finding things out third hand, 
that that to me is a really important part of being part of an academy trust. Yeah, it's a it's a really good point. So the way that I try to approach that would be that if in in a school, a single school, you know, the, the maths department is integrated into the whole. The music department belongs in the school. So why why does a school not feel integrated into the whole of a trust is, is kind of the, the, the way I, I approach it. And I think there are a number of benefits to this. So, so the single organization model, I think, sits in the space where we talk about uh, we care about every single child in this trust. Now, there are some children that I know really well because I go to that building every day and I teach my timetable in that school and my kids wear my uniform to come to school. So I, I get the emotional tie to that. It's really important. But being part of a trust gives you an opportunity to have an impact with more children than you could ever have in one school, which is frankly one of the reasons why, why I did it 20 odd years ago. Because I didn't, I, 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 at this point, I suppose I'd reached in my career having had two headships. I could have carried on having headship after headship. Or could I stay where I was in Bristol and have a wider impact that way? And, and I was lucky enough that all those new leadership posts and opportunities came up in my career. But, I, but that idea of being an NQT who teaches English, for example, can, can, could actually spend their entire career in that trust but work in maybe a dozen different schools in lots of different settings. I think it's a really exciting one. The reality of, of, of where we are today is it's not easy to sell your house and move to another part of the country and then move to another part of the country, which is what I did in the 1980s and 90s. You, you, you kind of want to put some roots down. And, and this is an opportunity, I think, to, to, to do some of that. So for me, the single organization where you buy into the culture and you feel that you're contributing to something on a holistic level is really, really important. Does Harry Kane feel more passionate about England than he does Spurs? Probably not. But he knows that if he performs well for Spurs, he's going to get the opportunity to captain his country. You know, um, if, if you're a cricket fan and you think about some of the, the young players in the county cricket at the moment who who are really coming through, scoring runs, taking wickets. Of course they want to do well for their county, but they also want to play for their country. So, so you know, if, if I'm a brilliant maths teacher, I want my kids to get a great maths education and I want to do well for the children I see every week. But if I can help my trust become the best performing trust in maths education, why wouldn't I want to do that? Absolutely. And then your second point about communications is a really good one. And, and I think that's this, this, for leaders, it's a tough one because... I used to talk about this, you know, in a single school, I could probably talk to, if I wanted to, I could talk to or speak to the entire staff at least once every day in a staff briefing when I was on duty, at lunchtime, at lunch duty. If you've got 15 schools, it might be that I only speak to some staff once every seven or eight weeks. So you've got to find a way to get your messages across. And that's where I think the way that we're working this afternoon online, whether it's a video blog, whether it's written blogs, whether it's email messaging, you can do that so much more easily now uh, than the technology that I had available to me in the uh, in the mid 1990s, early 2000s. So those two things are, are two sides of the same coin, Paul. I think. Do you know what, Greg? I could discuss. The, the, book, the book is fantastic, David. I have to say, thoroughly enjoyed reading it cover to cover. Um, I'm going back over it again because if anybody hasn't read it, please go and get it. Leading Academy Trusts, Why Some Fail But Most Don't. Sir David Carter with Laura McInerney, a great read for anybody working in education. Thank you very much for, for sharing your insights. But Greg, before David goes, you know what time it is. I do. This is going to be fascinating because you must have some stories, David, that you can tell some that you probably can't share either. So um, be gentle with us. <laughs> <laughs> it's the confessional. Over to you, David. It's the confessional. 
So I, I knew you were going to ask me this because I've heard of the podcast and I spoke to my wife last night and, and I ran a few through and she just tutted and nodded her head. And said, no, no, no. <laughs> we, we live in a different safeguarding era now. That might have been funny in the 1980s, but you're not going to get away with that. So, so I, but, but the story I'm going to tell you is a true one. Um, I, I've, I've made reference to the fact that I was a music teacher um, and that was my first love. I, you know, music and sport were the two things I did in school myself, which I really enjoyed. And I couldn't believe that somebody would pay me to teach music and people. So that was that was just great. So, so you can imagine the scene now. This is this is late 19, 1980s. Um, I'm not saying that's the last time something funny happened to me, but it's the one, it's probably <laughs> the one I can I can share with you. Um, and I was teaching at a school in Reading, um, and uh, and loving the job, loving the school. But but it was quite a tough school. Um, uh, it was uh, Reading, if you know, is a is a, is a is a brilliant town, but but it was it was edgy, and we had some quite challenging kids uh, in it. But, but for some reason, I managed to connect with them. Music worked, so I'm, I'm teaching. I think it was year eight or year nine. It was a key century class. There's thirty odd kids in the class, and in the late 1980s, we didn't have the sophisticated music keyboards and computer wizardry we have today. We basically had xylophones and and hundreds of them. Uh, and I and, and every lesson we got all the percussion kits out of the cupboard, and that's how I taught composition and performance with kids in Key Stage Three. So that's the setting for it. So I'm teaching this class, um, and and we've not had the best the best lesson. Um, probably been a bit crotchety. They've certainly not been on form. And, and anyway, ten minutes before the end of the lesson, I said, right, that's it. Bring all the instruments back in the middle. Um, where this lesson's over, you're going to sit in silence for the last ten minutes. And so I've got all the instruments in the, in the middle of the they're sitting around the outside looking really somber and miserable and they're quiet because I've had a bit of a shout. Um, and I've started to pat the instruments away. So I just think, well, what I'm going to do first of all is I'm going to get rid of the big ones so that as they walk out of the room, no one's going to trip over it. So I pick up this enormous xylophone, total silence. I've got a total silence. And I don't know what happened, but I broke wind. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there are 32 14-year-olds going... Do we laugh? <laughs> do we look out the window? What do we do? And I very carefully just put it back down on the ground, and I stood there with my arms folded, and I just dared them. I, <laughs> and thankfully, the bell went, and they trooped out silence. But that was that was told at that leaving speech. It was also told at my next school's leaving speech because someone had, had gone with me to, the, to that school. They knew about it, and it was even mentioned. In, in the blog that a former pupil wrote, who's now a teacher. So, Dave. <laughs> that was brilliant. I wasn't expecting that as a punchline. That is brilliant. Oh, dear I, I, me. Well, my reputation is ruined, but I, but I thought I'd share that one with you. Uh, brilliant. Thank you very much. And, and thank you again for your, for your time and your insights. We, we really appreciate it. Thank you. Really enjoyed it, chaps. Thanks ever so much. All the best. Thank you. Greg, any final words? Fantastic. 40 minutes. I've learned so much and I could listen to David for hours and hours. You know, mats are there to raise standards and sustain them and, and that's how you do it. So superb listen. Thank you very much. Brilliant. And don't forget, you can follow us at The Brick Wall Pod or The Brick in the Wall Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Till next time, goodbye.